Welcome to Business Brief, Missouri Business Alert's podcast focused on the business news and issues shaping the state. In this episode, we'll learn about how the bike industry is faring after reaching a high point early in the pandemic. Then, we'll hear from a health expert about some of the economic ramifications Missouri could face as a result of the state's ban on abortions. My name is Siggy Reese, and joining me is my co-host, Teddy Mallorca. Teddy, how are you doing this week? Siggy, I'm doing well. How was your 4th of July weekend? It was honestly great. I got to relax, take a quick break, and I got to see some cool fireworks, so I really can't complain. How about you? Did some chilling at the pool, and it felt like it was exactly what I needed. I am feeling recharged and ready to jump back into things. Awesome. Me too. Do you want to read our first headline? I would love to. Missouri Governor Mike Parson approved a $49 billion state budget last week, but not before cutting almost $650 million. The largest item removed was a $500 million tax rebate plan that would have offered Missourians up to $500 for single taxpayers and $1,000 for married couples. In making the cut, Parson called for a special session of Missouri lawmakers to address cutting the state's income tax. A date has not been set for the session. This year's budget was bolstered by an unprecedented level of federal COVID relief funding, which was apportioned to a variety of projects across the state. Panera canceled plans for an initial public offering, or IPO. The St. Louis area-based company had been planning to go public since November. It had agreed to a deal with a special purpose acquisition company, basically a shell company that helps facilitate public offerings to make the IPO. Panera cited a faltering market particularly for IPOs as the reason behind calling off the offering and terminating its deal with the special purpose acquisition company. In recent weeks, rising interest rates and a declining stock market have made IPOs less enticing and more financially complicated for the companies involved. Carson City, Nevada-based waffle maker Marson Foods announced that it is developing a manufacturing and warehouse facility in Hazelwood. The $35 million facility is expected to open later this year. The warehouse is expected to create about 50 jobs with an average annual salary of more than $112,000. Marson is owned by Dave and Jan Marson, who have spent significant time in the St. Louis area. Hazelwood helped facilitate the deal by approving a 10-year tax abatement through industrial development bonds and a $400,000 loan. A proposed silica mine in St. Genevieve County received a state regulatory permit from the Department of Natural Resources last Thursday. That same day, the project's owners sued the county health department over a health ordinance that is blocking the development of the mine. Residents have raised concerns that dust would significantly affect air quality and that the mine could contaminate well water. The proposed mine would produce both frac and industrial sand, which are used to make industrial products and to extract oil during fracking. For our first story, we are going to take a look at the bicycle supply chain's challenges. Teddy, I know you've been doing some reporting on that. That's right. The bicycle industry experienced a frenzy of activity early in the pandemic when people felt cooped up indoors and were looking to get outside and be active. That initial rush to buy up bikes placed some strains on the supply chain, and many retailers are still not able to fill their stores' racks. Was the growth from those initial months of the pandemic enough to support those businesses over these past two years? That's what I wanted to find out. After an initial increase in demand, I wanted to see if demand had tapered off or if it was continuing to climb. 
I spoke with several people in the industry to get their thoughts. Here's that story. Carl Kimball repairs a bike at his shop in Columbia. Like many bike shop operators, the owner of Klunk's Bicycle Service and Sales has found it difficult to keep a fully stocked inventory since the start of the pandemic. Lately, it's been easier to stock entry-level bikes than it was two years ago, but higher-end, specialized models are still hard to find. Supply chain in the bike industry is still really wonky. Um, there's little pockets of stuff that show up. High-end parts are seemingly nearly impossible. That wonkiness began with the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, when an unprecedented increase in biking demand, coupled with factory shutdowns, sent the bicycle industry backpedaling. Suddenly, bike shops couldn't keep their floors stocked despite more customers looking to buy. Like all the parts, all the bikes evaporated all at once. And they weren't prepared to like rebuild, they can't build things fast enough to get caught back up to where there's this surplus of stuff sitting. At Clunks, repairs began to swamp business as there were fewer bikes to sell and more new cyclists bringing old bikes out of the garage. But bike parts became just as scarce as new bikes themselves. Finding parts was almost a game of who could buy items the fastest once they were stocked online. Even after ordering the parts, a lengthy waiting period followed, Kimball says. I mean, I felt like you had like two minutes and it was gone. If you didn't get them in your cart and get them ordered, you were done for, I mean, some of this stuff was a year out. As parts and bikes became more elusive, COVID-19 outbreaks at bike factories slowed down the industry's ability to keep up with demand and back orders began to grow. Now, the industry is still recovering, and many bike shops continue to struggle to get the inventory that they want. The inventory at Walt's Bike Shop in Columbia has varied over the course of the pandemic. What has remained constant, though, is a lack of bikes, says Sam Botts, the bike shop sales manager. Walt's typically carried 300 bicycles before the pandemic, but at a point last year, the shop only had about 30 bikes in stock and 2,000 on back order. Trek, one of the main brands that Walt sells, had over a million bikes on back order globally, compared to 3,000 to 5,000 in a typical year, Bot says. There is still a long way to go before the bike industry returns to normal, or whatever the new normal will be. Waltz now has hybrid bikes almost fully stocked, and many parts are readily available, but there is still a shortage of higher-end bikes, like road, gravel, and mountain bikes. Bot says he's still constantly having to tell customers that their products are out of stock. I feel like it's probably going to be another year or more before, before we don't say a lot, well, you know, that's, those are back-ordered, that's back-ordered, you know. You feel like a parrot after a little while. You know, squawk, it's back order. You know. <laughs> Heather Mason, president of the National Bicycle Dealers Association, says that the shortages are still a national issue. And although consumer demand has slowed since 2020, new challenges in the industry continue to arise. There's, a, there's wait lists almost with every single retailer across North America right now of people waiting for these premium bikes. The bikes people can get their hands on are rising in price. Kimball says an entry-level bike in Missouri has increased to $650 from $425. Nationally, prices are even higher, Mason says. We're talking about a bike that used to be, let's say $600, is now $925, right? That's a big jump. Um, so there's definitely 
some price um, hindrance on the market for sure. Experts agree that it will likely be at least another year until the industry stabilizes. For our next segment, you had a chance to talk with someone about the state of Missouri's reproductive health system following the decision from the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's right. I talked with David Slusky, an economist at the University of Kansas who specializes in health economics. Before we get more into that interview, what are we seeing across the state in terms of reproductive clinics? Well, the Supreme Court ruling paved the way for Missouri's trigger law banning abortions to go into effect. The ban meant a St. Louis clinic had to halt those services immediately, leaving clinics in Kansas and Illinois as the nearest facilities that will allow patients to get abortions. How is this ban expected to affect other reproductive health service providers around the state? And what economic effects, if any, will we see from these decisions? So that's what my conversation with Slusky centered around. The expectation is that other services will suffer as a result of abortions being banned, and the economic implications could be wide-ranging. Here is some of my conversation with Slusky. So with the recent Supreme Court decision and Missouri's subsequent move to ban abortion, I'm kind of interested in what that'll mean to the state's business climate and specifically how it might affect attraction and retention for businesses. I think businesses and workers are going to be less likely to want to work in Missouri over this. Um, And I think that businesses are going to have a harder time with customers um, because of this. There's an amicus brief that economists signed about this. And I think one of the most salient papers about this um, is one that looks at um, household financial situations using the Turnaway Study. Are you familiar with the Turnaway Study? I am not. Do you mind explaining it? Sure. So um, about 10, 15 years ago, uh, some sociologists went to abortion clinics in about 30 different states, and they talked to women who just made or just missed the gestational cutoff for an abortion. And then these individuals were matched to their credit bureau files so that you could look at both their household financial situation in the years before and in the years after. The idea here is that missing a wanted abortion hurts a household's financial situation. Okay, and that matters both if you're a customer and if you're an employee, because you don't have, you are, you are not in the financial position, position you hope to be in. And so then individuals who are thinking about where to take jobs are gonna say, I don't wanna move somewhere where if I needed an abortion, I'd have to fly to a different state. Or I don't want to move somewhere where if I were pregnant, I might die because I can't get the care I would need in the event of a miscarriage. I'm sure you might have heard about this, but a lot of companies are offering within their healthcare plans uh, funds for people to receive abortions should they need them if they need to travel within around like a hundred mile radius. So what are your thoughts on um, the, I guess, growing trend of companies doing this? And what do you think that it'll mean um, for companies who are hubbed in states in which uh, abortion is restricted? So there are a couple of things. One is I feel for these companies, right? Like these companies are stuck and they're trying to do the best they can in a bad situation. However, first of all, the legality of this is unclear. Like it's unclear what the legal liability of these corporations is of doing this. Also their privacy concerns because you don't necessarily want your employer to know that you want an abortion. And yes, you can carve it out with health insurance and that no data sharing, but it's still still pretty close. 
And I think there is a real concern about this increasing the power that employers have over their employees and the information employers have about their employees. Something interesting is that Kansas City is a metropolitan area that's in two states. Kansas has not yet restricted abortion. I believe well, they're- Well, there's a constitutional on amendment on the ballot yes. in August. Yes, so um, they have not uh, voted on that yet. Whereas that's Missouri's true. Missouri's went into effect- This is um, true. Basically immediately. So what do you think this means for um, companies who are in the Kansas City area, um, and especially uh, with Kansas and Missouri like competing markets? Right. And Remember, there were very few clinics in both states before all this. So I think if the amendment fails and Kansas stays the way it is, that um, that people will travel around the region. I think it will make the Kansas City metropolitan area much less affected because people can travel across the border. Um, that said, even if the constitutional amendment fails, doesn't mean the legislature isn't going to try to push the envelope and and such. And also, you know, if the gubernatorial um, election goes one way or the other and new people are appointed to the Kansas Supreme Court, right, you could see this overturn of the Kansas Supreme Court level as well. Okay. Um, and is there anything else that you would that you would want to add regarding um, abortion restrictions and business climate? I mean, I think the um, the maternal death concerns um, are in addition to like human concerns are economic as well, right? In the sense that if a 35-year-old pregnant individual dies in childbirth because a miscarriage wasn't treated soon enough, um, in addition to the human costs of that, there are economic costs as well, because that's someone who we've invested all this human capital in an education and such, um, and person another 30 years of working that we as an economy are not getting, right? That's a huge economic loss on top of the personal loss. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. Take care. Bye. With both of our segments wrapped up, it is now time for us to give you our words of the week. Teddy, why don't you start us off? All right. So this week, I've chosen hog fog. Okay, a little rhyming fun. I can get behind that. What does it mean, though? Hog fog is a term that describes the foul smell coming from hog farms particularly from large-scale facilities called Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations, or CAFOs. I see, but why are CAFOs and hog farms in the news right now? Well, in Missouri, the Department of Natural Resources is currently undergoing the process of renewing Master General permits for CAFOs. The process, which is done every five years, is open to public input. Okay, so I'm starting to get a better picture of things, but I'm still missing the link between the bad smell and current regulations. Well, activists are worried that recent moves by the department could reduce regulations for larger CAFOs. Groups are concerned that a general permit would have less stringent regulations, which would allow facilities to become more relaxed in their disposal of waste. A Smithfield facility recently received a general permit to replace its site-specific permit, which had regulations that were tailored to the location and operations of that facility. That same facility is estimated to have spilled nearly 65,000 gallons of waste between 1991 and 2021. And what are regulators saying? Regulators are pointing to anti-backsliding laws, which prevent facilities from receiving new permits that are more relaxed. They say that there is nothing in the general permit that allows the facility to do something that it wasn't able to do under the site-specific permit. That's all I've got this week. What do you have to finish us off, Siggy? 
So this week, I want to talk about campaign cash. Interesting. So what about campaign cash recently caught your eye? So Missouri's Republican Senate primary candidates have spent nearly $10 million on television, social media, and radio advertising campaigns, with almost all of the spending coming after March. Wow. And where is most of it coming from? So the bulk of the spending comes from the three candidates considered to be the frontrunners for the nomination, U.S. Representative Vicki Hartzler, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, and former Governor Eric Reitens. Schmidt and Hartzler have spent a combined total of about $1.9 million directly from their campaigns. Political action committees, or PACs, that support Schmidt and Greitens have spent about $3.7 million, and a PAC that opposes Greitens has spent another $1.5 million. Has any of this spending had a noticeable effect on the candidates' polling numbers? Not really. A recent poll put Hartzler slightly in the lead, but Schmidt and Greitens are close behind. These numbers are nearly identical to polls from several months ago before any candidates began campaign spending. If the advertising hasn't created a noticeable difference in polling, what could? Nearly a quarter of Missouri Republican voters say they will vote for the candidate that is endorsed by Donald Trump. So it appears unlikely that anything will change until that happens. Now it's time to wrap things up with our closing thought. For that, we'll turn it back over to Carl Kimball at Klunk's Bicycles to hear his thoughts on the near future of the bicycle industry. As far as like the industry moving forward, you know, like I said, it used to be that the where like you know, Trek, Giant, Jameis, Bianchi, whoever, whatever company had a warehouse just chock full of bikes. I think that day is kind of come and gone. Like my old business model of like having bikes on the floor, you know, I sell you a bike, I order another one to replace it. I kind of think those days are kind of done. Like one of my reps was saying, you know, it used to be like Bianchi would put in an order or Jameis, whoever. And, you know, it was like order at the factory in Taiwan. It was like a seven-month lead. And now they, and he said, you put in an order now, it's like a two-year lead. And so all this stuff is just, it's just this big clog and a, this big backlog. So, I mean, I, I see, yeah. Uh, a couple of years still before it's it kind of shakes out. Well, that is all for this week. Thank you to the M33 Project for providing music for this episode. From my co-host Teddy Mallorca, editors Ian Laird, James Marshall, Skylar Rossi, and Michael Stacy, I'm Siggy Reese, and this has been Business Brief. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.